Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nuria Martinez-Keel. You're listening to The Source. Thanks for joining me this week as I discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them. My co-host, Caleb Branch, is on a much-deserved vacation this week. The November 3rd election is less than a month away, and we want to make sure our listeners are prepared to cast their ballots in person or by mail. All of our weekly episodes leading up to the election will focus on local and statewide races. Last week's episode gave a great explainer on state question 814 and 805. Check that out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts if you haven't already. This week, reporter Chris Castile will join me to talk about Oklahoma's two elections for federal office, obviously counting out the presidential election. We'll cover a race that's an absolute toss-up between Democratic Congresswoman Kendra Horn and Republican State Senator Stephanie Bice for Oklahoma's 5th Congressional District, as well as Democratic challenger Abby Broyles running against longtime incumbent Senator Jim Inhofe. Reporter Chris Castile is with me now. Chris, thanks for being my co-pilot sure. this week. Um, let's start with a highly competitive race for Oklahoma's 5th Congressional District, which covers most of Oklahoma County and all of Pottawatomie County and Seminole County. Two years ago, Democrat Kendra Horn pulled off the biggest upset of the 2018 election cycle when she unseated Republican incumbent Steve Russell with only 51 percent of the vote. And ever since, Republicans have been laser focused on taking that seat back. Do they feel confident State Senator Stephanie Bice will be the one to do it? I, I think they feel like they did get uh, the right candidate. I mean, she um, she emerged from a, a field of, of many. I'm trying to remember if it was eight or nine who originally filed. There was about four or five that uh, um, that were legitimate uh, contenders for it. Wound up with two, um, Terry Neese and Stephanie Bice. And, you know, my my sense is that they were grateful that that bias emerged. I mean, she's a, a state senator. She's got elected experience. I mean, she's, you know, really been uh, an influ- influential member on some issues, including the alcohol, um, you know, sales in grocery stores. And she kind of spearheaded uh, uh, the implementation of that state question. She's very well spoken. So and she's about uh, the age of um, uh, Congresswoman Horn, and there you're in an election year, um, an election kind of a time too, uh, beyond just the year of it, where um, you know Trump is not popular with uh, with a lot of Republican women, you know, and I think that to some extent contributed to Congresswoman Horn's huge upset in 2018. So. Going into it, I think they they were really focused. They really wanted to have a Republican candidate um, who could win back some of that Republican. The the um, 
you know, the problem that she's been facing is on education, you know, and but you, you may be wanting to get to that uh, later on in this. Sure. So local polling of 500 likely voters in CD5 showed Bias had a narrow lead over Horn, 49% to 45%, with a 4.3% margin of error. error. Yeah. The website 538, which does a lot of statistical modeling nationally, said Republicans have a 51% chance of flipping the seat, while Democrats have a 49% chance of keeping it. What makes this race such a toss-up? It's a good question because it's plurality Republican, you know, um, and for the most part, it it is, as you said, most of Oklahoma County. And Oklahoma County itself is as trended blue, even though the um, in in how it votes, even though um, the registration is still plurality. And I say that because it's not just Republicans versus you've also got a ton of independents. So there's a, they don't have over 50 percent. They don't have a majority, there, but they do have a plurality. But you look at um, 2018, the governor's race um, of 2018 um, in Oklahoma County, Drew Edmondson, the Democratic uh, nominee for governor, won was it 58 percent of 58 percent of the vote in Oklahoma County. Um, I mean, that is just huge against Kevin Stitt wound up only winning four counties and losing the race. But still, Oklahoma County, and it shows in state legislative races that you saw in 2018, city council races, you know, some of the people that have won in the the last two years, I think, uh, some of the council candidates uh, who've replaced kind of status quo um, council people. You've just seen the bluing of Oklahoma County, which is the bulk of the 5th District. And even though there's a lot of registered Republicans, you know, they are they're like registered Democrats used to be in uh, in in eastern Oklahoma. They were registered that way. They don't always vote that way. You know, they they register that way sometimes so they can vote in primaries because there's more. So it was a, a district that a lot of people uh, in politics were looking at. That will be the first one to flip. Nobody nobody thought it would happen as soon as it did. But all the right things happened in 2018 for Congresswoman Horn to win. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, that district's blue or even purple yet. I mean, we've, we've got to see, really. I mean, you've got to see if, if she can win re-election. But it's definitely, you know, you've got evidence that it that will vote for a Democrat for Congress. You don't have evidence that I'll do it twice in a row. Right. And just to... Harken back to what you were talking about, uh, candidate Drew Edmondson, 54 percent of the vote in uh, Oklahoma County, which is still a 10 percent, 54 percent, still a 10 percentage point lead over now Governor Kevin Stitt. Mm. I, That's a blowout in, yeah. in in Oklahoma County for a Democrat, and that was there are a lot of circumstances involved in that, but that's a blowout uh, of the Republican in Oklahoma County. Right. Yeah. Now I have heard. Nancy Pelosi's name so many times. Uh, can, can I? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, to yeah, yeah. No, it's okay. <laughs> I, I wish I had these numbers in front of me. Um, uh, it would be helpful. But I know um, Horn won Oklahoma County over over Russell by by a few percentage points, I believe. I don't have my laptop here, but what the the only reason it, it was close is because of those more rural counties, Seminole and Pottawatomie County, that Russell won big. So, you know, that could happen again. You know, that you could see uh, Congresswoman Horn 
win Oklahoma County easily. I don't know, but it, it's possible. But then, you know, the margin hinge on or, or be closed by Seminole and Pot County. Right. It's, it's good to point out that there are rural areas that will be voting in this election, not just the heart of right. Oklahoma and, and, City. And in the primary, Republicans in their ads, it was bizarre. They, they acted like they're running in farm country or something, you know, I mean, especially Terry Neese, but really all of them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like out in the fields, you know, shooting guns. And, you know, it's like, is the Oklahoma skyline, Oklahoma City skyline maybe going to be part of this uh, adri- advertising campaign? But they were really appealing to those rural votes because that's, you know, um, the most conservative part of the district. Absolutely. And that, I think, is going to key into maybe what I'm going to ask next, which is I have heard Nancy Pelosi's name so many times while watching TV in Oklahoma City just from political attack ads against Kendra Horn. A lot of these ads paint Congresswoman Horn as a liberal who always backs House Speaker Pelosi. When you talked to her this week or or last week, correct me if I got the date wrong, she said she's much more moderate than these ads would have you believe. What does her record and her platform show in that respect? Well, what it shows a mix of uh, of results in terms of if you're gonna if you just want to use data. And I had a big story about this this weekend. I'm mean, kind of looking into this. Um, ProPublica, which has a compiled a database of how you know all of these votes. ProPublica is an online journalism site, uh, and they have very useful database. It's a lot of stuff that used to be done by Congressional Quarterly, looking at party loyalty, absences, just all kinds of things about congressional voting. She has voted with Nancy Pelosi 86% of the time. She's voted against her party. Um, she's um, this number has changed somewhat because I heard her in the debate say last night she voted uh, uh, only, I guess, the fourth most uh, uh, against her party of any Democrat in the House. I, two weeks ago they were saying six, but that could have changed because of the votes that were held since then. So she has voted with Pelosi 86 percent of the time. One big kind of um, qualifier to that is that speakers don't vote that often. They um, they just don't. I and mean, that's it's not Pelosi. It's just a tradition that speakers don't vote. So out of like 900 votes cast by Kendra Horn, there are about 70, I think, that, that she voted with Nancy Pelosi, that, that Pelosi voted on, I think, in that time. And of those, 86% of the time they voted together. There were some, some big um, agreements on things like um, – you know, U.S.-Mexico trade, some of those bills like the election reform bill, like the, you know, the background checks bill for guns, and some big disagreements. The uh, two that are the most immediate are the um, the relief packages. Uh, she voted, Horn voted for the CARES package, or actually that went through. She supported it, but she has voted against the, the two that, uh, that the Speaker has crafted since the CARES Act. The very first package passed. Those are two big times that she's separated. Uh, she separated with uh, Pelosi on minimum wage. You know, quite frankly, I have major disagreements with the speaker uh, and others on some pretty big issues. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I I think that's why it's important for us to have representatives that are going to question things, not be a rubber stamp for. I don't care which party it is. Right. Like I just don't think that's the way that representation should work because I don't represent 
the Democrats in the 5th District or the people that voted for me. I represent everyone and needing to take all of those things into account. Uh, but certainly these are uh, tactics that have been around for a long time. Yeah, and I don't know where House Speaker Pelosi stands on all these issues, but when she was speaking with you, she said she disagrees with some of the more liberal Democratic policies. She doesn't like Medicare for all. She's not supportive of the Green New Deal. She does not support a ban on fracking. So there are certain issues where she tried to make herself clear that she's not falling in line with maybe the Elizabeth Warrens of the world. Um, I wanna, the Pelosi's of with the, the world. With the Pelosi's of the world, <laughs> yeah. for sure, yeah. I, I want to ask about Stephanie Bice. Um, I don't want to make it seem like the uh, political attack ads are only going one way. Bice has taken some negative you know, mailers, ads as well. It, where are they hitting on Bice's record in the state? Mainly um, on education, on, on those early votes, uh, not early, early, early in her career votes. Uh, she was first elected in 2014, you know, that, um, so in her first sessions, I think she has said, I don't have the numbers in front of me, how much they had to cut because of the oil um, uh, bust in that, that time period. Um, the budget was just collapsing, you know, Oklahoma was just in a constant budget crisis because of falling oil prices uh, back in that time period. You know, my first couple of years in the state Senate, it was a $600 million budget shortfall followed by a $900 billion budget shortfall. Actually, I think it back to it was 1.2 the second year, 1.2 billion, and then a $900 million the third year. Um, and, and we kept, you know, we kept, we couldn't keep pace. And we also have a cap on our rainy day fund mm -hmm. and that's a constitutional cap so we had exhausted the rainy day fund and we were unable to really um, make sure that we were funding core services um, to the level that i felt it needed to be on the federal level it's a very different conversation though because we have uh, unlimited spending there's no balanced budget amendment there's no cap on that so i think there are ways to look at trying to reduce uh, expenses still paying for core services, but I think it can be done. It's just going to take a lot of work. Look, I've had to take some tough votes in the legislature. Um, you've seen the attack ads uh, on me from Club for Growth because of a lot of those mm -hmm. votes. It's not easy, uh, but it, I think it's necessary. We can't continue to pile on to this deficit. So, um, yeah, the ads against her have been mainly uh, uh, based on those uh, those cuts to service and they're, you know, broad services and depending on who you talk to and it's sort of how it's how calculated education is still not back to where it was. And on an, uh, I think you've written about this. Um, mm -hmm. I, I can't remember how you put it, but it's like an, on an inflation adjusted basis, it's still below what it was in when 2009. They started 2009. Mm -hmm. And, and the student population has increased by 50,000 right. as well. Now, so. You had a pretty detailed story about it that I read. So, yeah. You can address that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, state funding of schools is not recovered to pre-recession levels by any means. Based and adjusted for inflation, right. Right, yeah. right, right. Absolutely. So that is that is kind of the main line of a, a attack against her, I think, is, is the education vote. Some of this other stuff I saw, um, it was just the most random bill. I think it was on payday lending or something. Uh which I've, you know, I've been meaning to delve into, but uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure what that, that bill does. I mean, I, th I know there were um, – there's been kind of a national state-by-state -state effort to try to uh, 
um, kind of rein in the interest or like cap what interest uh, rates can be charged by these uh, so-called payday lenders. But again, I, I wasn't hearing that bill pass. I don't necessarily know what it is. Right. Chris, we've heard about elected officials in Congress who have to walk the tightrope of being in the Democratic Party while representing a heavily Republican state. Mm-hmm. How have we seen that play out with Kendra Horn, especially when it comes to key issues and big votes in her first term? Yeah, so that's interesting. I mean, I, and I covered a few of them. Uh, there were times, uh, I mean, Kendra Horn is not the first sole Democrat in the uh, congressional delegation um, since it's gone Republican, which is fairly recent history in a, in a, for an old person like me. Um, she has probably been um, um, about the same, I guess. I mean, it, it's hard to compare all the votes because like you had you would have huge votes like Obamacare when Dan Bourne, when, you know, the ACA, when Democrat Dan Bourne was in there and he voted against it. Um, there's nothing necessarily, you know, that huge that um, that was so partisan that that she was. But I did write a story last year about um, her departure on some energy votes. And, 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 and the departure really was with those uh, those other Democrats. In the past, there, you know, there are Democrats like Bill Brewster from uh, Southern Oklahoma, a Democrat um, who is in the delegation as a lone Democrat. Brad Carson, who is from Eastern Oklahoma. Dan Bourne, who is from Eastern Oklahoma. They were Democrats, sold Democrats in the delegation. They pretty much were on board with the with the energy agenda. You know, whatever the. Uh, you know, the energy vote was, they were on board with the energy companies, you know. And and that went for one of the most contentious um, drilling issues of my entire time in D.C. And it was just all, you know, almost the entire, you know, 27 years was drilling in what's called the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge up in Alaska. Pristine area that, you know, has just been, you know, this kind of battleground for whether they should let, you know, rigs in there. Those previous Democrats voted to let them drill, to let oil companies drill in there. And these are almost always amendment votes. I mean, I, I can't speak for every time, but it's usually an amendment to a spending bill. That then, so last year, 2019, there are a series of, um, of amendment votes about drilling on public land, and Anwar is public land, offshore, the coast of the. Um, uh, the Gulf of Mexico, offshore the Atlantic, that's pub, that's considered public land. The Interior Department leases the leases that land for drilling. There were three amendment votes basically on where you could drill: Anwar off the coast of um, uh, the Atlantic and off the Gulf Coast of Florida. And she voted against allowing drilling in all of those areas. So that was a major departure. If you want to look at a very kind of Oklahoma type issue. What she has come back to say, sorry to ramble, um, what she has come back to say is that at this point, no Oklahoma companies have drilling interests in the, and the, and that's true. You know, Devon pulled out. I think they all drill in shale now, you know, in continental U.S. The Anwar, to my knowledge, and we reached out. I've talked to Oklahoma companies. No, no Oklahoma company has plans to drill in Anwar. Let's be clear. Like, we need, uh, as uh, climate change is real, we have to follow the science, but we need an all of the above approach. I think mm-hmm. I, I absolutely 
do not support the Green New Deal. It is not, the, it is not well thought out. Uh, it would have opposite impacts. We do need to address climate change, but we need an all-of-the-above approach. Right. Yeah, she touched on that in, in her interview with you. If you want to see that, check that out on Oklahoman.com or on our YouTube channel. I remember Stephanie Bice being somewhat of a more moderate Republican, and, and correct, correct me if I have a wrong reading there, um, but when she was in the state legislature, and then when she ran for CD5, she kind of from off the bat promoted some of President Donald Trump's biggest talking points like build the wall. And I think that might have taken some Oklahomans aback to see that. Have you gotten a sense of where she falls on the political spectrum and just what kind of Republican would would she be in Congress? Well, um, you never really know that. I mean, and, and I, I I would say this about that. <laughs> um, number one, like say on something like guns, right? Um, she voted for, const, uh, you know, permitless carry, constitutional carry, whatever you want to call it, um, when Fallon was governor. And then, you know, voted for it when Stitt was governor because Fallon had vetoed it. So um, I'm not sure that she knew when she voted for it in 2018 when Fallon vetoed it that she was going to run for Congress. So I, But I would say this, you know, I came back here in 2018 to cover the governor's race, and um, there was a lot of feeling in Oklahoma City. I didn't live here. You know, I, I had no idea. There was a lot of feeling that Mick Cornett, who was the mayor of Oklahoma City, was this kind of Republican who wasn't like other Republicans, right? I mean, he was like this moderate... Republican who, you know, he didn't, he didn't believe in all these things that Trump was saying, not our Mick, you know. But sure enough, you get into a Republican primary, you know, where 97% of Republicans approve of Trump's, you know, the job he's doing, you, you adopt those positions, you stand no chance of being the nominee, zero, in a Republican, winning a Republican primary if you're not on board. So he all of a sudden was really tough on, you know, Im- immigration, and he supported the wall, and, you know, he he uh, was against the teacher strike, and uh, he was, you know, a big Second Amendment uh, supporter all of a sudden. So I would just say that about um, uh, Stephanie Bias. You right. know, all the, a lot of those people that, that are in the, these metro area people um, and I and you know I don't know. I, I, w- I would say that David Holt is in that uh, the mayor now, a former state senator, is in that kind of category with him. In fact, he was uh, Cornette's chief of staff, you know, and is viewed, I think, by a lot of people, you know, the Twitterverse, um, you know, as this moderate too. But I, I think that my guess is that David Holt wouldn't wouldn't get into a. Um, Republican primary and all of a sudden be a Trumper. You know what I mean? Um, I think he would, I, I'm just guessing. I, I, I think that he would probably just avoid running for uh, an office like that if he had to do it, you know. Remains to be seen. Who knows what the future holds? Yep. Last question on the CD5 race. I've seen a lot of outside groups paying for ads and mailers. Um, what kind of influence have groups like that had on the contentiousness of this race? Well, um, so I did a huge kind of look at that a couple of weeks ago um, that I hope everyone will get on Oklahoma.com and read about because I, I went through group by group and, and, and talked about who funds this. Where, where does, who is this group? Where do they get their money? You know, and it's, 
it, it's kind of the usual you know, the usual people you know um it's it's hollywood it's investors you know it's it's wealthy people that are behind a lot of this this funding so you don't really know until the end um and then you i don't know how you measure you know how much you know the um this group or that group's had you know worked in the in the race but in the in the primary a, a group called club for growth which has gotten involved in in races in oklahoma before with 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 little success um in the past just hammered stephanie bice you know she voted for this tax package and uh you know, I think that she, you know, the Bice campaign was was totally unprepared for it. Happy, I don't think they saw it coming, but you know, Club for Growth came in, spent half a million dollars almost just in the primary. You know, and then Bice wound up finishing second to Terry Nice by a pretty good, you know, margin. She finished second, and they kept it up, kept it up, um, just hammering her over this uh, uh, tax increase vote that she took to to fund a teacher pay raise but she won the nomination so i don't know if how you know she won the nomination despite almost a million dollars being spent on her and negative ads in that primary you know and that was about i may be forgetting something but for that was the biggest outside group but now you've got a situation where they basically offset each other you know you've got millions being financed by what are called the two campaign committees, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and the National Republican Congressional Committee. Those are the committees where um, they're affiliated with the, the House, the Democrat, House Democrats, House Republicans. They collect millions of dollars from their own members and then, you know, kind of rich people on, on each side. Um, and they, I mean, they just bought up so much time you know, it's just it's just incessant. These ads are just incessant. So I don't know. Do they cancel each other out, or you know, this you're talking about all the Pelosi ads you're seeing. I mean, that they all have adopted that strategy. You know, let's move on to the U.S. Senate, where Jim Inhofe has served longer than I've been alive, and he was he was first elected to the Senate in 1994 and had a lengthy career in politics long before that. Right. What is his case for why he says he deserves another term? Well, I don't want to make his case for him. Right. Um, he is the longest uh, serving senator from Oklahoma. Um, there are two before him that served 24 years, and uh, he he eclipsed that. So um, one thing interesting that he said today, and I'm not, I'm not totally surprised uh, – that he was candid about this, but he's at, he's making no commitment that he'll serve out this term. Um, you know, I mean, I think a lot of the reason that he is running again is that he is chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, which is a big deal. And um, but they term limit their um, uh, chairman, right? Uh, so he's only got if Repub- and, and this all hinges on Republicans con- uh, maintaining the majority. Um, uh, in in the Senate, he could only serve four more years as chairman, and then he term limits off. He rolls off after that as he can't be chairman. He can still be on the committee, just can't be chairman anymore. So he basically said today in an interview here that um, you know he wouldn't commit to serving out the, the whole six years. Jim Inhofe is eighty five. 
years old? And he will be 86 before the next term begins. His birthday is in November. So he, it, with his six-year term, if he's reelected to another six-year term, he would be 92, about 92. He'd be 93, I think. 93. Yeah. Into his ended. 90s if he finishes the entire right. six-year term. Democratic challenger Abby Broyles, a, a former TV news anchor in Oklahoma City who now has her own legal practice, has run a very outspoken campaign against Inhofe. And, and she said his longevity in Washington puts him out of touch with Oklahomans. Chris, you pointed out in your interview with with Miss Broyles that seniority in the Senate isn't necessarily a bad thing. Tell me about that. It's the most valuable commodity. I mean, it allows you to get all kinds of things done that a, that a, 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 a member without that kind of seniority could do. I mean, um, the example I use for people, I, I think it's fairly clear to understand without, you know, this is such like beltway in the weed stuff. But um, 2016, um, the Choctaws, Chickasaws, the state of Oklahoma, and Oklahoma City worked out this, this very complex uh, water treaty, water deal, compact among them. It wasn't a, a treaty or a compact. It was a, a deal, an agreement that needed to get congressional approval. Um, and they got it done around the time of the election of 2016. And after the elections, there's a after every election, there's a time in in Washington called lame duck Congress, and that refers to that two months, November, December, before you know after the elections, but after the next Congress or before the next Congress is sworn in. So it's not a time where you really have like you can hold hearings, introduce. It's not a time for the how a bill becomes law thing, you know that you learned on um, you know PBS when you were a kid or in your civics class. It's it's a time for let's stick this in a bill that's already moving and uh, get the get this done. You know, that's how that's how the sausage gets made in a lame duck. It's like you're looking for bills. We've got to pass this one. Let's just let's stick it in there. Mm-hmm. So they went to Inhofe. <clears throat> sure enough, there was an infrastructure bill that Inhofe, you know, was the author of. And it had to move, or it was gonna. It was probably gonna move, and Inhofe could get it moving. And we're talking about a you know a Republican Congress, both houses back then. Sure enough, this water agreement, you know, um, became got congressional approval within a few weeks after it being you know the ink being dry um, here. And I looked, at, I did some research on this because I, I was I was curious about how fast these kind of water agreements with tribes are not uncommon, you know, for states and, you know, to have to reach agreements about how water is going to be divided up among, you know, sovereign governments. There's one from Arizona, <clears throat> excuse me, I think involving the Navajo, that, that, would be, that had been in Congress for years and still hadn't moved. And, it, and I assume that it was an agreement that everybody, and even had John McCain. So mm-hmm. anyway, so seniority allows you to... Uh, he can get things moving. He's, he's got that. And, and it doesn't even really matter if you're in the majority. It helps if you're in the majority and you have that seniority. But your seniority alone is going to um, allow you to get a, a lot of stuff done. For me... 
the most interesting part of your interview with Abby Broyles was hearing her stance on policy issues. So much of her campaign, especially what I've seen on social media, has been focused on attacking Jim Inhofe. When she talks about policy, she seems very much like a moderate type of Democrat. Your interview with her covered a lot of ground, a lot of policy issues. So what stance did she take on things that maybe stood out to you? Um, You know, really nothing surprising for a Democratic candidate. I think, um, um, you know, obviously she's a a defender of the uh, Affordable Care Act. You know, no no surprise there. you know, one thing, one issue that I that I wrote about last year, but I, I, I'm not sure how much attention this has really gotten um, outside of presidential campaigns and, and outside of the Beltway, is the whole issue of public funding of abortion. And, you know, for so many years, that was just automatic. You know, there's a, there's a language called the Hyde Amendment that's applied to almost every relevant spending bill. Um, that was that would say like having to do with Medicaid. That has to do with the VA. You know that has to do with military. Any any like federal agency that has healthcare connected to it. None of these funds can be used for you know abortion except you know save the life of the mother. And it's like I said, it's just been automatic every year. It's named after a former congressman from Illinois. It's never, but Democrats have gotten to the point where they're like, you know, this is really unfair to poor people to have this in there, to have people or or to military spouses or you know whoever um, might might be affected by that. What what that is? So now there is a lot of talk, and it was almost in almost every Democratic presidential campaign. <clears throat> excuse me, including the. Um, Biden's the Democratic presidential nominee said it's time to do away with the Hyde Amendment. They were going to debate it on the House floor last year. They're going to have like their first real debate about doing away with the Hyde Amendment. And for whatever reason, it didn't materialize, you know. Um, So they haven't had that debate. It was in a bill at one time and then taken out. So um, she said, uh, Broyle said that she, you know, supported getting rid of the Hyde Amendment, which, you, you know, I think Horn has, has essentially said the same thing. Kendra Horn has essentially said the same thing. You know, in 2020, I think that women are capable of making their own health care decisions without the interference of the government, whether that's Jim Inhofe or myself. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I fall on that issue. And, um, you know, women should have um, access to quality, affordable he- health care, just like everyone else. So public funding, where would you, where do you think you would fall on that? You know, I think that there are, um, again, I think that a woman's health care decisions are up to herself and her doctor. Um, when it comes to public funding, um, you know, I think that there are services out there that provide um, contraceptives and health care and access to health care to people who wouldn't otherwise have it through some of these organizations. Okay. Right. Uh, yeah, she, uh, again, I, I think I was a just not having heard her policy stances on a lot of things. She reminded me a lot of Kendra Horn and and things that she said she wasn't in support of and and things that, you know, I think maybe both sides of the aisle can support. Um, I have to ask about climate change because that issue led to Inhofe's most infamous moment in the Senate. The snowball. The snowball. How did these two candidates differ on climate change? Well, in every possible way. Yeah, really. Um, I, although, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember, um, 
I, I do think that uh, that Abby Broyles was reluctant to to um, say that we should mandate this, you know, and truly, if you're going to get anywhere, you know, um, there have to be incentives, something. Um, it can't just have like goals, you know what I mean. Um, there has to be something concrete to move the market that way, which is what you're trying to do, really. I mean, the government has a lot of influence itself. It's huge power. It uses a lot of power itself. But really what you want to do is is offer, you know, instead of using the stick, use the carrot to, to get people to move that way. But Senator Inhofe doesn't believe that there, that human activity is a major contributor to, to global warming. He's... He, he couldn't be more upfront about that. Right. Abby Broyle is just saying that she believes climate change is real it, it, and well, supports the science and, and, of it. Well, again, that's the dis- – and I will tell you that climate change is real. Mm-hmm. What, what the distinction comes with what it's caused by, you know, whether it's human activity. Um, the science says that it is. Every scientist says that it is. Inhofe doesn't believe that it's caused by – or at least – he doesn't believe it's mostly caused by human activity, like the emissions of greenhouse gases. Um, it, it is it, a contributing it, factor, a small contributing factor. It's a small yeah. contributing factor. So, so you believe that reducing greenhouse gas emissions is, would? It's, no, I think it's done right. It's it's a desirable end if it's not one that kills jobs and and takes away our, our you know, destroys our economy in the meantime. Then, then how would say I mean what would be a proposal that you would you you wouldn't necessarily make but that you might go along with in terms of reducing greenhouse? Oh, gases? I think reduction. They may be uh, in, incentives uh, for uh, reduction in in uh, greenhouse gases in any number of. Uh, areas would you have to look at them individually mm-hmm. and see if that's worthwhile interesting it's tough to beat an incumbent as entrenched as as jim inhoff is does polling show abby Broyles has a chance to take his seat um there hasn't been a poll that i have seen that shows abby Broyles has a chance to take a seat we um uh, amber integrated of oklahoma city poll did a statewide poll in september mid-september i think that showed Inoff with a 16-point lead, 46 to 30. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know that it'll be, you know, that much of a blowout, but um, you're talking about a state, a very red state, where a Democratic presidential candidate hasn't won a single county since um, 2000, um, Al Gore. And... Uh, hasn't voted for a Democrat for the U.S. Senate since David Bourne in 1990, his reelection effort in 1990. So when we're speaking of data, uh, scientific data, I have not seen any data that shows me um, that she has a chance uh, to unseat him. Right. Just so listeners can know, this isn't like Kendra Horn's election, where she can rely solely, not solely, but mostly on uh, metropolitan area voters. This is a statewide This is a statewide election. race. And, and we, you and I were talking before we came in here about the governor's race of 2018. And this was a year where, you know, I mean, I, I, I spent, you know, um, 11 months on that campaign, almost <clears throat> 10 months, I should say, on the governor's campaign. And really, I mean, just from talking to everybody inside the campaign, campaigns, 
leading up to uh, you know election day between Drew Edmondson, the Democrat, and Kevin Stitt, the Republican, everybody thought that race was going to be close. You know, I mean, Drew was this like well well respected uh, um, former Attorney General, um, super super smart. Uh, you know. Uh, and in a year where it, it looked like, you know, Democrats were going to have some major gains because of the teacher strike, because of education. And I, I really, I mean, I thought he had a chance maybe to even win it. Um, but he got beat by, um, I, I want to say it was like 54 to 43 or something like that. He got beat by over 10 points, I believe. 54 to 42. Very close. <clears throat> he got beat by over 10 points. And... Um, he won Oklahoma County and um, three other counties, Cleveland County, of course, um, Muskogee, uh, Cherokee, and just got blown out in some of those rural areas, you know. So, and this is Trump on the ballot, too. You know, Trump's on the ballot now, this year. This isn't a midterm, you know. So, um, it. She's probably not going to win too many, if any, rural counties. She wins Oklahoma County, and she might, as we know from 2018, that ain't going to get you the job. Right. Well, Chris, thank you so much for Glad to do sharing it. your expertise. Appreciate your time today. All right. Thanks for joining us this week. You can read all these stories and more every day in The Oklahoman and at oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode.